I'm Charlotte Hawkins and welcome to Last, Past and Blast. Each week we'll delve into the musical lives and memories of a different guest and each guest will choose three pieces of music. Their last, the latest piece of classical music they've been listening to, their past, which is a significant piece of classical music from their life and a blast. That's their wild card, so keep an ear out for guilty pleasures. Together we'll explore the way music has shaped their lives and what it means to them. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with composer, pianist and producer Alexis French. We spoke about how he used to play the kitchen table as a child before he had a piano, how he has to listen to the radio at night to quieten the constant music in his head, and how he ended up sitting on the roof of the Royal Academy of Music throwing paper at everyone below. Here's the episode. Alexis, welcome. I am so thrilled to have you on my podcast. You are one of my musical heroes. I love your oh. music. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Charlotte. It's such a thrill to be with you today, virtually, and um, and obviously have a natter. Uh, so uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Can we start off where it all began for you? Because I think music came into your life quite young as a child, didn't it? But you didn't have a piano back in those days. No, we didn't. But we had a lovely looking kitchen table that I seem to recall. <laughs> and there was music. Music filled the house every minute of the day. My dad loved music. So I do remember Stevie Wonder, Bob Marley, all those wonderful, great Sam Cooke. Not much classical uh, from my parents' collection, but so much great music. And of course, I didn't delineate in terms of genres there anyway. It was just great music that I wanted to emulate. And as we didn't have a piano, I played the kitchen table, uh, mostly with Stevie Wonder, because I loved Stevie Wonder, I still do, of course. And then eventually that led to my parents getting tired of the relentless thumping and buying something a little bit more mellifluous, tuneful, and a piano. It's a wonderful story. There must have been something in the music then that was compelling you to to want to take part, to want to be involved with that? Yeah, I think there was. <clears throat> I think in uh, the Stevie Wonder stuff particularly, it's quite sort of visceral. And, and also when listening to it, I found it was also very physical. You could sense the physicality in the playing as well, not just the music itself. And the idea of playing along, sort of dancing, playing, tapping, was very real to me at the time that I was playing the kitchen table. I was playing the piano in my own mind. So yes, that's what I wanted to connect with. And do you still find yourself now, if you're out and about and you hear a piece of music that you love, do you kind of have that response where you feel like you want to be playing? No, it's kind of the reverse, really. So I, from then as well, like everything is internalised. So when I listen, I, I sort of, I hear everything. I have perfect pitch so that my head goes into just kind of analytics mode and listening and looking at the score in my head. But I don't play. And even when I practice, I try very hard not to play all the time. So my practice often involves just analysing the score in an academic way because I find that's more powerful than playing sometimes. And for young people in particular who are learning that combination of tactile engagement with the piano allied to time away from whatever instrument they happen to be playing, just looking at scores and understanding it and assimilating it internally is very, very powerful and accelerates learning. 
So I kind of stop the tapping now, but I still think about music obviously very deeply. Do you find it hard then when you listen to music to be able to relax to it? Are you constantly thinking about the music, analysing it? A lot of the musicians I speak to sort of say that for them, it's it's a different process when they listen to music than perhaps for, for the rest of us who listen to it to switch off. I think that when I'm in that music enjoyment zone, which is invariably when I'm on, on a elliptical trainer, we've just acquired a sort of, to call it an indoor gym would be sort of grandiosing in a way which isn't entirely accurate. It's a, a piece of equipment in a rather cold, damp garage. But we like <laughs> to think of it as a gym. And when I'm on that piece of equipment, I listen to music and I enjoy music for its own sake. That's probably the only time, oh, when I'm walking, or something like that, or running. The rest of the time, like for instance, in the in the night, I have sound on all night to drown out music. So I have my radio on all night, but it has to not be music. So it has to be speech. And right. then that's how I can, occasionally I'm woken up if it gets, it makes me sound really precious, but if it gets too much, then I wake up much annoyance of my wife, who's a beautiful sleeper, I have to say. I'm so envious of her sleep. So I'm not. I'm a terrible sleeper because there's always, it, you can't switch it off. So I, I have so sound on all you always hear music my, every, every in your minute, head? Every, yeah. So I keep, I rely on podcasts and, you know, spoken word radio in the night and uh, stuff like that. And it's not a hardship, Charlotte. It's just how it is. So just kind of live with it. But that's amazing. So is it is it your music? Is it any kind of music that you find just fills your head whenever there's there's a moment when there isn't other noise? I think it's a combination of it's not my music as such. It's just it could be sort of found sounds that I've been listening to or environmental sounds that turn into, you know, sort of symphonic things in my head or or it could be something that I've been writing in the day that that I've been jostling with and then I make sense of in my sleep. It could be anything really, absolutely anything. And then sometimes the first thing when I do when I come down to the living room is then record that thing on my iPhone or not. It can be exhausting, but it's not, as I say, it's, uh, I certainly don't feel sorry for myself in any way. I'm, I'm grateful <laughs> For music in my life. But I guess that's for you why it's a gift, isn't it? That it's always there and it's something very special in your life. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, it sort of stems back to my days with uh, when I speak to my mum, it always reminds me of my responsibilities to be thankful for everything that I have. And, and she's quite right, you know, going back to my church days and when I used to be a church organist as a little boy. And, and I, you know, and, and that's something that I do really is to vocalise that thanks when I'm out walking. And uh, I find that also very powerful as well, just to go on walks and say, thank you for this, thank you for that. And, and you know, so... I'm grateful for everything. You were saying there about you playing in church. So from a young age, you were about seven or something, weren't you? You would go and play on a regular basis at your I, local church. Yeah, I do remember that. And I, I think I have a lot to be thankful for there in terms of the generosity of the churchgoers and particularly the church organist, who I think I probably <laughs> ousted. <laughs> He, you did him out of a job. Maybe he just wanted to get out. I don't know what it was, but I, I saw a couple of photos. Like, who of, is this seven-year-old? Who is? Do you know? So I think that's incredibly generous of him. I remember his name as well, Mr. Foster. Lovely, lovely man. So yeah, my dad must have got me in there somehow, and then I started playing for all the services and weddings as well, which is great fun. And 
you know, really church took over my life, but as not only as a place of worship, but as a, as a, a, a vehicle or an arena in which to, not to demonstrate my art, but to hone my art. You know, as a pianist, first and foremost, like a composer and all the rest of it. But I think just being able to improvise voluntaries and think of melodies and extend them and extemporize in church and have a ready-made audience as well was incredible to have. And I think to have that growing up all the way through my youth was a, it was a real gift. And when did, I mean, obviously church music then came into your life and we know you, know, you were saying about from your dad, there was music like Stevie Wonder. There's obviously quite a lot of different musical influences that have gone into your music. When did classical come into your life? I think that's, that's a really good question. And do you know why it's so interesting? It's because um, <laughs> one of my, my, this isn't a plug, Charlotte, don't worry. But my, my <laughs> latest album, I'm not even going to say the name of my latest album. How about that? <laughs> Um, and my dad, <laughs> my dad switched on this track. Sometimes I receive messages from him. When I do, it's always a big moment, even though I'm, I'm 50 years old, to receive a message Aww. from my dad about music. And, and he, so he was referring to one particular track called One. And he said, love that track, my kind of music. And it's, of course, it's a sort of classical track. It's got the Royal Liverpool feel on it. So I, yeah, but it's also got a gospel choir on it. And it just made me stop and think for that moment to think, how did I get into classical music if gospel <laughs> is, my, is my dad's kind of music? And I don't remember classical coming from them. I, I'm sure they'll correct me and say, well, actually, you know what? We used to play Mozart all the time. I just can't recall. But I used to retreat to my bedroom and I used to just lie back and listen to Mozart endlessly and Bach, Symphony Number no. 40, I just remember there being, in, for me, being an entire universe in that work. And, and just wanting to step inside that work and also everything that it represented and, and writing string quartets for myself. And I remember I had a little red book full of my, my works as a young boy. So that, I kind of found that for myself, the classical music, as an extension of everything else I was listening to. There were no borders, there was no delineation, there was all, and importantly, there was no hierarchy in terms of the music that I was listening to. It wasn't that Mozart is somehow better than the Sam Cooke or the other. It was all on the same level and just for me, it was there to be appreciated for what it was. And how did your parents feel about you pursuing a career in music, how supportive were they? I know that your dad had obviously made a big decision, hadn't he, to change his life. He came over from the West Indies. He'd had a long journey to get here. Did they have a, a sort of a, a path in mind for you or were they encouraging and saw obviously the talent, the affinity that you had for music? I think that they were, well, my dad came over when he was about 16. He hasn't said much. He's never said much about that. I had a brief conversation with him, even though I have inquired but he the only thing he did say was that he didn't eat for the 14 days that he was on the ship when he was coming over um, because he was so worried and anxious and also seasick as well but he just to talk about my dad for a moment was he's an incredible man really I mean I, when I think about just the idea of crossing the ocean as a teenager to make a life for yourself in a, in a country far away from everything you know and having to forge your own life. And um, my goodness me, I don't think I'd ever be able to do, to do, I certainly wouldn't be able to do that. But he found himself in the Royal Air Force, got training, eventually ended up working in avionics and then executive jets and worked for the avionics department then for FIED. And I, I found that absolutely fascinating. And, I, and much of my, I just talk about 
just again, my dad, much, much harder was, was with tech. He used to buy me circuitry boards and things like that. And But he always recognized what I have, whatever that is. And he used to talk about his very discipline was big. And everything was about training. Everything was about, you've got to be able to talk about your music, Alexis, when you play you know from the age of five there was no kissing after the age of five it was all shake hands you got to be able to do this you got to be able to do that and it was like he just had everything planned out and also just the reading relentless reading the relentless maths that we had to do as kids maths and piano just loads and loads of reading and academic work and just the idea of having to be better is something my mum used to say so that that was sort of drilled in and then my dad when i was showing you know what i what i could do as a young kid then put me in a position of auditioning for places like the royal academy when i was about i think 10 and there was a scheme that surrey county council ran called i think it was exceptionally gifted children scheme and so i auditioned for that and then they supported everything i did like you know, through the Royal Academy, the Purcell School of Music. So I have a lot to be thankful for in terms of Surrey County Council support. And as a child, did that mean a lot of sacrifices? It was obviously a lot of hard work. You must have done an awful lot of practice to be able to get to where you got to. But did it seem like you were sacrificing it or did you just think, this is amazing, I'm, I'm getting to focus on what I love doing? It was funny because my dad often used to say, Alexis, today, obviously you have your practice. It was just you know, black and white. And if you do this amount today, you can have tomorrow off. And I used to say, do you know what? I'm just going to do that amount. But he never gave me the next day off. <laughs> and I never learned. I never learned. So it was just part, the discipline and the practice was just part. We weren't allowed to congregate on street corners or that stuff that teenagers do, like, you know, like going out on Saturday into the, the shopping centres, the mall, the American call. I was never allowed to do that. You know, so there were sacrifices, but I only remember certain instances. I remember my when a girl asked me out when I was 11 and I wasn't allowed to go because obviously that's uh-huh. Saturday. And you kind of, you have these things where you just kind of think, oh, it's great, but obviously I won't be allowed to do that. And it was just a part of life. And I never resent, the only time I resented it was the tiredness, um, reading. We did a lot of work and I don't know why, but I seem to remember maths by candlelight and it got tiring occasionally. And also the big thing, my dad didn't like me sleeping in, so I never did. So I, was, I got up when he used to leave for, for the base, whatever, I, that's the time that I had to get up, including the holidays. So there was never any sleeping in either. I do remember feeling tired, but I'm grateful for that now. I still get up really ridiculously early, sometimes four, sometimes five. But I love those times because those are the times when I can get the most done. And it's funny, you know, because my son, who works incredibly hard, I have to say this because he may hear this one day, but he does. <laughs> Both my kids, I've been so proud of them through this period. I think this period of time has been hardest on young people for all sorts of reasons. You know, those who are just leaving college or university, going out into the world of work, and suddenly the whole world collapses in on them. And so for my children, um, you know, they're young adults really now, age 19 and 17, I think the way that they've 
I just pursued their goals and their interests through this period. I've been enormously proud of them. But my son tends to um, his day starts not 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 late, but you know. Um, mid-morning shall we say and I let him do that because I just think gosh I would have loved to have done that just <laughs> had a little bit of a line you know but uh hey ho can't have everything but he's already you know very talented isn't he I watched a, a video that you put out of him singing John Legend and you know that music obviously runs in the family yeah well he has so many gifts actually not, not only the musical ones and he's extraordinarily musical but also sporting talent he was a tennis scholar for, for many years but also academically you know his interests in oriental ancient oriental civilizations is something that um he said well actually i'd, I'd like to study this and he just said look egyptology ancient or uh, japanese and chinese civilizations i thought gosh that's fantastic what a beautiful course of study that will be yeah and my daughter, obviously, Savannah, is a, is a dancer and so gifted. In, in and she dances on Bluebird. Dance on Bluebird. She danced for uh, Dreamland as well. And incredibly, I remember when we did a concert at Royal Albert Hall together with uh, the Royal Phil. It was like, um, it was classical Brits, uh, I think, quite a few years ago now. But I remember just being backstage, just looking at the guys. And Savannah was there just about to do this solo in front of the orchestra. And, and we had Pretty Yende, the great South African soprano as well there and she was so relaxed just so together and just went on to deliver this amazing performance I just realized the strength that she had within her and um so she'll she'll do fine in life because she's got that grit you know good yeah and I know your wife Leslie is a she's a double bass player isn't she I have this sort of vision of of all of you as a family with all your you know your different aspects of it that you come do you come together and you know have musical sessions like a kind of sound of music kind of vibe in the evening yes. um we do you know what I've been trying to engineer that all through this period like for instance at the start of lockdown my daughter and I used to do these sessions together where I used to play she used to lead these kind of wind down decompressing classes for people and I used to play in the background and it was lovely it's beautiful um Aww. And I was trying to get my son involved, but he quite rightly declined the opportunity to collaborate with dad. I <laughs> uh, had far better things to do, so I don't blame him for doing oh. that. My wife is, is so busy. You know, she obviously is so many different areas, really gifted as a musician, but also creating a wonderful home for us all and just keeping things balanced. And uh, I always think it must be incredibly difficult living with me. <laughs> And she does an enormous job of not keeping my feet on the ground. I don't need that, but just keeping everything kind of normal, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And how was lockdown time for you? Because I imagine perhaps on one hand, it gave you more time to, to focus on your music and composing. Mm. But I know you had to delay your tour, didn't you? Mm. Because of what happened. Mm. I think for me, uh, in terms of what I do, it was a kind of business as usual thing because I live so much in my head anyway, without wishing to sound in any way self-absorbed. But uh, so much of what I do daily is just internal. The only difference is the fact I wasn't traveling, unable to travel, which I obviously would have been, I would have loved to have been doing. So that that didn't happen. But, you know, when I think about people have been affected and you know the livelihoods people who work in music or in the arts in general dancers techies you know the for instance my 
promotion outfit, um, not my company, but the, the people who I'm sort of partnered with, Live Nation, and all those really talented men and women who are in those fields, you know, just personal stories that, that I've heard about of people trying to keep their roofs over their heads, trying to pay their mortgages, selling off whatever goods they have just to keep themselves afloat. And it has been heartbreaking to hear those stories. So in comparison, I've, I've not really had to endure any kind of hardships. And, and uh, my, my heart goes out to everyone who's been affected adversely during this period. I know your album, Dreamland, you, you wrote that, didn't you? Wanting to offer music that would help people through a difficult time, mm. wanting to sort of give a bit of solace, which I think actually is a, is a really special thing to do. You know, people get lots of things from listening to music and actually to have music that specifically is there to help them, I thought was mm. was a really special thing to do. Thank you. And that's that kind of buoyed my spirits, actually, those sort of messages that I've received from from people with their own personal stories of, of how they've been able to not overcome, but but in a sense, just feel renewed in some way by listening to my music and able to whatever it is, give them five minutes of relaxation a day or attack a, a personal challenge with a little bit more vigor. So I think uh, that's something that's been very special to me to hear about those particular instances. Now let's talk about your musical choices because I'm going to be asking you your last past and blast. So yeah. let's start off with the last. So this uh -huh. is the latest piece of classical music that you've been enjoying listening to. Which one have you picked for this? So I picked, this is very tricky actually just to pick one piece of music, but I picked the concerto, violin concerto by Brahms. It goes back quite a way, actually. I remember seeing, I think it was a movie or sort of movie documentary, and I remember as a boy, and I remember being in awe, immediately struck by sort of musical perfection. And in this particular work, for me, it represented at that time and still to this day the pinnacle of virtuoso musicianship. You know, that thing to which all players should aspire to where you are expressing yourself with honesty and truth but also then there's that kind of seamless blending with musicianship and technical expertise and also that the piece of music the brahms i just think is so what's well, i suppose in the simplest terms it's so tuneful so melodic and it just kind of arcs and bends and soars and what about your past choice so this is a piece of music from some time in your past that's meant a great deal to you, that's really stuck in your head as being significant? So that would be the, let me one second, because I, I, Slavonic dance it is, but it's one of the Slavonic dances by Brahms. And it's actually E minor. Don't know whether you can hear this, but I'm going to lean over. It's one. That one, I'm sure. I'm sure you know that tune. And I remember, <laughs> I remember playing that with my childhood friend who I went to, well, I basically, we did everything together, Royal Academy and Purcell School. And there was this one moment when we were in the Purcell School, when it was at the top of Harrow Hill, and it was next to Harrow School, at the top of Harrow Hill. Beautiful school. It's about 200 kids in it, surrounded by orchards and stuff. And it was this sunny day when Chris and I were preparing for something. It was either a competition. We didn't play together often, but it was a duet. And we played this Slavonic dance. And 
the world just stopped for that moment. He was an absolutely beautiful player. I mean, just beautiful. Uh, beautiful pianist, beautiful trumpeter, timpanist. I uh, used to play in the National Youth Orchestra and the Symphony Orchestra. He's also a fantastic painter and young engineer. Stunningly gifted, although we were very naughty. So we, we kind of just, we just found each other and uh, age. I think we found each other at the, in the Royal Academy, one of the Royal Academy rooms, we found a cardboard box and we decided, wouldn't it be fun just to jump up and down relentlessly on this cardboard box? We were 10, Charlotte. I, I can see your, your face looking horrified. How I old? waiting to hear at what, at what how, age this happened. Yeah, yeah, you're thinking, how old was he at this point? 20? I'll no, let no. you off slightly because <laughs> you're only 10. <laughs> so we were jumping up and down. And, and to know us, that was... But anyway, we're, we're playing this uh, Slavonic dance and it was just, it was glorious. And so that piece... Uh, has been very special to me since that day. And actually, curiously, my daughter, we went out for a walk yesterday and she said, you know what, I found this piece of music, it's so beautiful, this is my favourite. And she played that very piece. Wow. Yeah. And it was your friend Chris, wasn't it, that you lost at a young age? And I know that you've talked about this because I think that played a huge part in changing your music and what you did from that point on, didn't it? It did. It did when we lost Christopher. And because at that moment i think with my output and how i projected myself at that point was mostly in the classical arena you know beethoven Liszt, chopin core in concerts i always used to improvise at the end you know as a sort of adjunct and do something theatrical with the audience like pick someone's you know someone in the front row take their name so i always used to do that but it was very much framed within this sort of the classical canon and that's what I did and and you know the, the whole competition pathway and all the rest of that but even as a boy I knew that that's not everything that I was and it took me some time to make sense of of that thing because it was, wasn't really apart from maybe Keith Jarrett but he was really more on the jazz side there wasn't anyone I could look at and think that's it that kind of somewhere between the pianist, the producer, the composer, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of having to carve that pathway for myself. And I think for a long time after Chris's death, uh, I wasn't really able to do anything. It was just kind of completely numbing. And I spent a long time in my bed, essentially, just because, or walking, I remember walking around in the rain, knocking on a priest's door, asking him if he could help me. It was like, just really desperate. But I think then through the combination of being with my then girlfriend, my now wife, and also seeking help and also just coming to terms with who I was and why I wanted to do what I do, not only for myself, but also in Chris's memory as well. And so I think that formed a big part of my motivation, really, just to redefine what I wanted to do musically and how I wanted to project my musicianship into the world. And do you think there's, I mean, recently we've, we've heard about the issues with mental health, with people struggling throughout lockdown with the help that's available. I mean, I, I imagine when you're young musicians as well, there must be an awful lot of pressure in that environment. There's an awful lot of, of sort of examining what musician you are, where you're going, the pressures from outside. It, it must be quite an intense time. I think so. There's also that striving. I mean, when you're obviously very serious as a, as a young player, you see a lot of, you know, it's four walls you essentially see for many, many hours a day. 
and you are making daily sacrifices. And in many ways, when you do emerge and have to start thinking about, okay, well, I can play those notes and I can play those ones pretty well too. But now I have to re-engage with the world and find a career. That can be somewhat of a challenge if all you've been doing is actually retreating from that real world. I think also just that pursuit of perfection can take its toll. And I think for classical musicians particularly, but not not only classical music, but in so many different types of fields, that can be exhausting in a way. But I do remember in Chris, when we went to Guildhall, because not only were we at Purcell and Academy, we went to then Guildhall together. I remember when we, we often used to talk about conversations dominated by things like tone, tonal quality. I remember talking to him about the golden sound and we often used to hear people and and critique them in the most brutal ways. But, but then when we did hear somebody who had that sort of tonal quality, we used to really rejoice. But we also used to talk about the future and what we're going to do. Not Obviously it was music, but precisely. And he never used to want to talk about the future. And I have often thought about that, you know, and then when he went to, obviously he was hospitalized at Maudsley and, and visiting him there. But and at that time, I think I was doing something on Classic FM. I think I was doing like a lot, as many, many years ago when Classic FM used to have live concerts. So I remember I was doing like a, a Russian, because I was still in my core classical phase there. So I was doing like Metna and Bat- Balakarev and those guys. And then I went to see Chris and we used to talk about that. And he was still very much wanting to be there, wanting to play, you know. So, yeah, you know, it was, it was a tough time. Yeah, I imagine, though, you know, he, he'd be extremely proud of where you are now, the music you've got, what you're doing for classical music. I think, I, I don't know. I really don't know, because we, we just used to, uh, in the fun days with Chris, there was just so much, you know, banter, to use a youth vernacular, and we were just, uh, we just used to have so much fun and listening to all sorts of music, Level 42 and... Lots of level to do. He used to love heavy metal as well, and opened my eyes to so many things. I remember one really interesting afternoon at the academy. We were in the recital room. This is the Royal Academy, and we had a competition where we were competing against each other in this piano competition. And I was struggling with Haydn sonata, and I was playing Haydn, I think, in Chopin, and he just sat me down and played some high and just spoke to me about some of the, the classical finesse because I tended to over romanticize and sort of gush and it was just one of the most important lessons I've ever had in restraint and just not being you know the difference between the classical and romantic in terms of that not being explicit in terms of one's own musical expression so i think it not only would he have been a great player i think he would have been a great teacher as well i know that you teach don't you what do you think is important about what you pass on to the next generation how can we encourage more children to be switched on to music, to love classical music in particular, because I think, you know, that there is this concern, isn't there, that as a genre, are people going to continue to listen to it and continue to love it? Um, I think one of the most important things uh, to, to impart to young people is just the idea of music in the round. Uh, I think quite often in classical, in conversations where we talk, we talk about classical music and and trying to get young people into it, it, it often comes off like a kind of the top, the pinnacle of this sort of musical hierarchy. And I think often that can rub off in the wrong way. 
you know, I, I'm so grateful for when, when I was uh, a youngster, I, I listened to all sorts of music in this sort of 360 and um, learned to appreciate all different types of music, but never felt like I was being spoon fed or being spoon fed as part of a diet, an essential diet. And I think in, and I think there are so many, there's so much amazing work going on in schools and so many amazing music teachers doing fantastic things in the classroom. And I think one thing that perhaps we need to be mindful of is the fact that young people are, are very, very wise and educated and they know what they like. And I think if we were to present, for instance, I'm mad about well, all sorts of, of things at the moment, but I'm listening to this uh, piece of music by Getz called Mozambique. And, you know, if I were to pick five pieces, I wouldn't do it now, but for five pieces of music right now, maybe one of them would be classical and the others would be totally different. And it's just really looking at that in the round to see within this musical prism, what is there to appreciate? And particularly as young innovators and and, um, and composers, if you were to borrow something from that, 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 and that, what would you borrow? Because, you know, classical music has has some amazing tunes and sometimes just saying things as simply as as that without putting sort of teacherly hats on is all that's required sometimes and not sort of sketching out this kind of polarity where at one end you have the classical with everything that's worthy and then the other end you have whatever it is trap music grime music and everything that's not worthy and somehow they need to gravitate towards the other i think it's it's a little bit like osmosis. You know, people need to look at both extremes, if we want to put it in those terms, and learn from a, from both uh, genres. Because I know that one thing you're you're really passionate about is is making classical music more inclusive, more mm. democratic, more diverse, more mm. sort of you know representative of of the world. How how can we do that? Do you think what needs to happen to move it forward? I think to a certain extent it, it's happening in in one way. I think streaming, uh, proliferation of streaming has democratized classical music in many ways. You know, so in the way that you would on a, on streaming playlist, you would see um, certain number of works and then dotted in there classical works. I mean, quite often I see my works and you know <clears throat> juxtaposed by Ariana Grande and whatever is flavor of the day. And I love it when I see that. I think just in the streaming world because people are able to to access that kind of music, classical music, on their own terms, in their, in their own way. I think we're yet to see that in the concert hall. I think that would be an extremely eclectic concert, wouldn't it? Ariana Grande, uh, followed by Brahms and Beethoven. But, but I think we're, great we're, idea. Yeah, but we are moving towards that, uh, that eclecticism. And again, that sort of democratisation. I think for me, though, it does come down to being classical music being relevant to what young people want. So I think it needs to be presented within a suite of pursuits, musical, artistic pursuits. And, you know, because, you know, who wouldn't want to have an outlet as a young person for their artistic talents growing up, for everything that they want to express, to vent all their frustrations, to express all the beauty they have in their hearts, whether that be playing a guitar or playing a piano or DJing or, or whatever. But I think it's those points of entry that we need to consider so, i.e., I think the idea of reading music in that sort of very conventional, classical way can be a barrier to entry. I think pocket size, almost like a sort of pocket opera type piece of music that people can access much in the same way that it would access a 15 second or 30 second 
strand on Instagram, for instance, something that piques their interest, makes them curious and thinks, you know what, that's, that's really quite interesting. I want to I wanna have a look at that and I want to explore that a little bit further. How is that relevant to me? What can I do? What can I borrow from that? So I think it's really about removing the barriers to entry. In concerts, for instance, it is about making people feel that they don't have to be armed with a, a full suite of encyclopedic vocabulary to be able to talk about what they just heard and feel as, yes, I belong here. I'm intelligent enough to sit in this, this auditorium and comment on uh, this Tchaikovsky or Sibelius symphony, making people feel that it's okay to me. I know this is talking like this, obviously it's some way off in the future, but my goodness me, we will get there, I'm sure. And when we do, it'd be lovely for people, I think for people to feel as if those concert venues, they can express what they want, if they want to move around, if they want to get up and have a little bop. These are things that I say at my own concerts and have a little dance. And I, I think, wouldn't that be wonderful if we if we saw that as a kind of, uh, uh, just a, a normal state of affairs in the concert hall where people felt actually, it's not all about, you know, saying the right thing, doing the right thing. Anything goes here, much in the same way you would do if you went to a, a pop concert. You, you wouldn't be afraid mm. of, of stepping out of touch in any way. Because I know you said you, you you were watching the last night at the proms and you were struck when you looked out at the audience, mm. the lack of diversity and wanting to do something to to change that. Yeah, I, I did say that. And, and uh, but I just want to check that by saying that um, the proms is, is a great institution and uh, they do so much great work um, and I'm a big, big fan. And um, and there is a lot more diversity on the stage. I think there is a way to go in terms of uh, reflecting that in terms of the people who come to those concerts, whether that's through educational work, or it's through pricing, or it's through, whether it's through just targeting in terms of marketing and targeting. But, but uh, so many different things need to be considered when attacking that particular problem. But do you feel like at the moment, you know, obviously we've, we've had the Black Lives Matters protest. A lot of people are, are really focused on it at the moment and, mm. and wanting to feel that it's a moment for change, that this is a, a great opportunity, hopefully to, to move forward for actually for us all to embrace the fact that change needs to happen. Yeah, it does. Uh, but I, th I think, you know, I, I follow these conversations so closely, I, uh, not only in this country, but, but in the US as well. I, I always have. And my thinking is very nuanced on this subject. I mean, obviously, I support Black Lives Matter wholeheartedly, 100%. And I've been struck by the many conversations and, and voices and often intemperate exchanges that one sees on social media. And I've also been struck by people who have normally taken a, a particular uh, way of thinking, who have adjusted or changed their stance, which has also been heartwarming without naming names, of course. But I do think there is a long way to go. I think that obviously these conversations need to continue. There's, there was that moment, wasn't there, after the, those heinous acts that occurred in America where people took a moment to reflect and educate themselves and try to understand the world as it is and how did we get to this place and how do we move forward and re-engage with our communities. And it was a, even though the, the act itself was hideous and hateful and just, you know, soul destroying in so many ways, there was a moment there to be hopeful for a better tomorrow when everybody suddenly put those black screens on their social media channels and stop. Let's just look back at what we're doing. And those conversations were interesting also with the statues coming down and all of that happening as well. And I think 
There is a balance, I think, to be struck in terms of the sense of outrage, the understandable outrage and the anger. But also then one has to stand back from that and say, okay, well, look, what is real and what is not? I think that there was a, I was reading something by, I think it was um, Ready One Extra DJ, is it Dotty, who I think moved on to another station now. She wrote a book along the themes of outrage, you know, as uh, black people's minorities, you know, we need to think about what we are outraged by. Otherwise, we would be in a permanent state of outrage. And, and it's interesting because I've lived my life by thinking this wasn't a conscious decision. I, th I guess this was my parents by thinking anything is possible. And also, I've also lived my life, even though I haven't necessarily articulated this, by saying everything I have is a gift. Uh, not only my musical talents, but who I am as a person, how I view the world, and also who I am superficially in terms of my colour, my blackness, is a gift. And to think that way is empowering. And so it, it's not only to look at, look at what we can do and what we can add to the world, but it's also to look at our own personal political capital. And that's something that everybody can do. Not everybody chooses to do it because not everybody perhaps is in that, is empowered to do that or, or necessarily has that, has that particular mindset. But I've, I've found in, in terms of my own personal choice, that is how I choose to live. I'm not blind to things that go on in the world. And when, you know, the murder of George Floyd, I was so affected. I think I stayed up all night, which is not unusual for me anyway. And I, I improvised this opera because I, I had to get it out. So it's like a 40 minute opera and it was, it's, it's on my phone, which I will write out one day, but it was, it was, it had the three acts and it had everything in it because it was just, I felt it was, I don't know what I felt. I'd never felt that way. And, uh, uh about anything that that's happened, but, but actually then educating myself, um, as a, as a black man about how we got to this point and just looking at all those those shifts in the road where we could have gone in one direction or perhaps we felt we were sort of consolidating a way of thinking to a more positive frame of mind in terms of our global outlook. But yet again, this happens, but yet again, this happens. And, and also look in the UK, this happened as well. And these things are happening. And I think, but I think throughout it all, the one thing that we have to do and the one thing that enables us to put that foot in front of the other is to maintain positive outlook and to have optimism for tomorrow and to have belief in humanity that actually we will overcome uh this is not uh you know this is not just about one group of people or another this is we will and i say we white black whatever ethnicity and i think that's the for me that's the only way that we can overcome if we all look at this as a global problem. Have you ever suffered racism as a musician? Have you ever felt that people have looked at you differently because of your skin colour or judged you because of it? I don't know. I may have, but I would never, I'm just not the sort of person to ever reflect on that and think, my gosh, is that because I'm, I just would never, I'd never do that. I do remember as a boy, I don't know, I don't think so, Charlotte. I think, you know, I think sometimes people can take dislike to other people without there being any other agenda whatsoever. And that's okay. That's all right. 
you know, in the same way that, you know, I can't imagine this ever happening, Charlotte, but if everyone ever disliked you, you might say, oh my God, is it because I... <laughs> I'm I, sure like, there are that do. <laughs> I, is it because I have this or... Because, it's just sometimes stuff happens. Now, I can remember countless in instances, but that's not to say that that's, it doesn't exist. Racism does exist. I'm just talking about my own personal experience. As a boy, I can remember things that happened. I, I, and there's, there's one shocking moment in school. I... I the thing is, I don't even talk about it because, as you know, I am who I am because of everything that happened to me in the past, good and bad. So, yes, I can recall racist incidents, but mostly, honestly, hand on heart from teachers. Really? 100%. So what kind of thing? <sighs> you know, I remember sitting in a class age. There's one time when I was auditioning for the Royal Academy, I, kind, I had this piano. I didn't have, I auditioned on... I think violin as well. I think I had to compose as well. And so I relied on my, didn't have a specialist violin teacher. I relied on my classroom teacher, who was a strange chap, to coach me in violin. And I remember when I did my audition, he, the next week I came back to school and he said, well, how'd you get on? Did you pass? I said, yeah, I got in. And he, I, that, that was it. I stood there for about, I think, five minutes waiting for something. And he said, yeah, that's right. You can go. There was, no, there was nothing else. But then the next week I came back to class and he handed out the sheet music to the class and he instructed everybody to sing this song whilst he played the piano. And the song went and I jumped on an end because I thought he was a horse. And that song lasted a good couple of minutes. Wow. So that was what his did you answer. Do? You just you just sit there and you just think, is this really happening right now? And it clearly was. And you just think, okay, that's fine. I'm going to deal with that. And I think that kind of peppers, as a young person, you'd learn to deal with things in different ways. You think, and sometimes you look back and think, gosh, why didn't I, or why didn't I, but, you know, age 10, you know, you would only ever, I, I do remember one thing. I, I remember something happening to one of my children somewhere. And I remember that, I remember being motivated by that incident in hap happening to me as a boy in the letters that I wrote as a result of this thing happening to my child and saying, you take this down or you do this now, otherwise I go to this and then I'll do that mm. and then I'll do that and then I'll do that. You live, you learn. But those are, there are, he was a bad person and those people exist and they are in every walk of life. And those people that you you find those people everywhere who are motivated by whatever some something that's happened in their lives. I, I always I'm always a big believer in think in trying to understand the other person. You know, if maybe if sometimes if one of my children gets angry or 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 somebody is frustrated, some you know, what have I done to contribute to their how they feel right now? And I'm not saying in the case of racism that doesn't hold, but. I'm just saying in normal walks of life. But sometimes there's just no sense. You can't make any sense of any particular situation. But it's not, uh, I didn't dwell on that incident. It's something you remember, but it's something that makes you stronger. Something that makes you want to succeed. You know, I'm going to do this and and I'm going to do that. And, and that's the way I, I live my life personally. And do you think when you look at the world and how it's changed, that it has changed a lot from those days when, for example, you know, you said about what that that teacher did, because I was reading something the other day where actually some people feel that th there's more racism now, but it just didn't, it manifests itself in different forms. I kind of felt that we'd, we'd moved away from 
from it ever being acceptable to do anything like that. But there is a feeling from some people that we're, we're still in a situation where there's awful racism around. I don't agree, actually. I, I don't agree. I don't think the UK is a racist country. I think there are people there who are, who have particular, you know, unfortunate points of view, but I think those people invariably are in the minority. And do you think from that point of view then that there are racist countries? No, I, I don't think, I don't think, well, obviously some people, some people would look at particular parts of the world and say, that's a racist place, I'm not going there. But, but for me, that's, that wouldn't be a true statement. Uh, I think there are racist people and racist ideologies but I think then to to somehow say, well, you know, this proportion of people in this country are are of particular political persuasion, therefore that country is racist, is to simplify the argument uh, the, uh, to a point that isn't particularly helpful. There is much more nuance within that, and I think if we're going to pick apart the whole idea of of race and identity, we need to think in much more nuanced terms. And if we pick up with what's been happening specifically here in the UK, you were talking mm. about the statues and obviously that's sort of really grown as an issue, hasn't it? With people looking back at history and saying, is it right that we still have these statues to people who now we can look at and say, well, it's completely abhorrent what they did, although some mm. of the things they did might have been beneficial. Should we then judge them by some of the other acts that they did and say, well, this is unacceptable? And, and where do we draw the line on this? Or do you think it's a bit of a distraction, the focus when we look at who we're representing with things like statues? That's a big question. I think I'm going to I'm going to deal with the coda first of all. So when you talked about distraction, I don't know what I do think is a distraction. On the I was looking on, on social channels on various sort of media commentaries about particular programs. I think Faulty Towers was one of them being withdrawn from from wherever it was being hosted. I think narratives like that are not helpful. I think that is very much a. I don't know who's calling. Uh, or shouting at the rooftops for certain things to be withdrawn, taking off. But I, I do not think that's helpful for certain comedians to be apologising, you know, for, uh, for for things that they may have said unwittingly back in 1982, when perhaps they weren't. I mean, we have to allow people to move forward. We have to allow people to develop as individuals. I'm sure I've said things in the past that, you know, I'm not wholly proud of. We all have. That's part of, of growing as, as people. The statue... So yes, there there have been um, distractions in the media, and I think I think whether whether they've been put in there is purposefully to stop the sort of meaningful conversations that have been going on. I don't know, but they have been somewhat of a frustration to me, uh, particularly as they have to many others, of course. In terms of statues, I think that's that's in a way it's it's complex, but it's also completely understandable that people feel um, that they they want to protest against certain historical figures who have benefited or profited from from slavery. Or perhaps people, for instance, Gandhi, who have said unkind things about uh, African people in the past. Should that then be the the leader in terms of their, their legacy, in terms of what they're remembered for? Should we erase all the good work, all the good deeds that they have done because of some of those sort of heinous acts or the way that they have come into uh, into wealth? That's a question. I'm not answering the question. But I know that from my own point of view, I think it's so important that we understand history. We understand black history. 
I think that's a, a bigger question. Where is the black history in schools? Uh, it needs to be embedded into our school curriculum. I remember reading, actually, and I'm just, just a slight tangent here. I remember reading an article in a well-known broadsheet paper, and it was somebody talking ab about what's ever next? Are they going to start teaching about black music in, in our music classes? And I just remember feeling this, this was recent in last year. I just remember feeling utter horror and just thinking, my goodness me, this person is empowered to write these things in this particular newspaper. It is so, so important that young people not only hear about, you know, in terms of the African diaspora and, and the fact that black people were, a proportion of black people were enslaved, not black people were slaves, but they were enslaved. It's not important, but also to hear about the triumphs, to hear about innovations in, in engineering in science, across the arts, in all manner of things that, that make them feel, actually, do you know what, I can do that. And that's what's missing from our history books in the UK and also uh, um, in, in states as well, and all over the world, I dare say. But I think, I think to talk about statues for a moment, again, context is important. Context is so important. And I think that I personally am not in favour of statues coming down, because I think then that gives license for history to be repeated all over again. Uh, we need to learn from our mistakes and we need to remember our mistakes and we need to be mindful that actually we are here and we've been able to move on because of the fact that um, we are more conscious of the mistakes that we made and the more positive contribution we can make to society by acting this particular way. So I think contextualizing these particular figures in museums so that young people are able to read about that and think, well, look, he or she did this, that was bad. They also did this, that was arguably better, and so on and so forth. But I think resorting to criminal, what essentially are criminal acts of, of yanking down statues is not something that I, I personally feel is moving the discussion forward because then it then paints those particular activists in the eyes of many as wanton criminals. And then that sort of then dominates the narrative in a way that is not particularly helpful. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you've got a great outlook. We've got one of your musical choices left, which we must mention, which is your blast. So this is the mm. piece that you like to blast out, the one that, you know, some people pick a guilty pleasure or just one that's a little bit different. What have you chosen for this one? So the blast, again, this was tricky, but just looking back at my, uh, my life, I think one of the best nights of my life was when I met my now wife, Leslie, at the Royal oh. Academy. And we were dancing at the Freshers' Ball, uh, Duke's Hall. To, we were dancing to Sign of the Times by Prince. It was a great, great tune. Song. Yeah. And uh, I, remember, I remember her smiling face and her dance moves. I remember giving it some stick as well on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was just a really joyous night. And... And, you know, the thing is about the Duke's Hall, is, and, and, and particularly Royal Academy in general, it's sort of framed so much of my young life. And particularly when I was, when I was um, perhaps up to no good. And I do remember, you know, just going back to Christopher, just finding our way up onto the roof once of the Duke's Hall. We found our way through this. Actually, do you know, I won't say, because of all those junior exhibitions there now, I think, do you know what, I'm going to try and find that. I'm going to get an email from You'll the principal. You'll be giving them ideas. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we, we found our way. This is, and, and I do not condone this, kids. This was terrible behaviour. But we found our way up onto the roof. And then through the graylings, we found these, um, so we say, magazines. And we decided to rip them up. And 
whilst the orchestra were playing Strauss down below, can you picture this, Charlotte? We decided to <laughs> rip rip up into little bits and for a snowy scene whilst this Strauss is playing and chuck all this paper through the graylings from a great height. <laughs> and we thought it was the funniest thing ever. We thought we were absolutely brilliant. And um, anyway, so I, I think I got away with that, you know, but anyway i don't i frown about that until was not now. my fun until now yeah you've just held your hands up and told everybody that you did it but you know you kind of created that interactive musical experience i'm sure That's, it added yeah. to the atmosphere for everybody that was our motivation that's what we wanted. we wanted to improve their whole all-round experience yeah always exactly. thinking of others you did it for them <laughs> And I just want to check with uh, with your dancing then with Leslie. Do you think it was your dance moves to Sign of the Times that that swung it for you? That uh, you know, obviously you've you've been married for many years now. Yeah. Well, do you know what? She often talks about my dance moves with the kids. I do break them out because we do have you know quite a few dancing moments at home. I do love to dance. Aww. I was into that kind of whole break dancing thing, but I just wasn't very good at it. So I kind of did a slightly watered down version of that, but I thought I looked amazing. And that's, that's the thing. So she often talks about my dancing, but also my, my love of 80s drum beats. So oh, really? that, that, yeah, love that whole 808 80s drum beat kind of sound. Uh, yeah. Child of, yeah, child of the 80s is what I am really. Oh, well, you know, some, some classic piece of music came out of that time, didn't it? Really did. Really did. Yeah. Gosh, I miss Prince, you know. What an artist. Oh, no, he was great. Yeah. And did you did you get to see him in concert? No, I didn't. I was too too early for me. I was still still on lockdown for my parents. Oh. Um, but um but I think no, in recent times I didn't, sadly. No, I just enjoyed his music, enjoyed buying his records, enjoyed watching his videos, and just appreciated his musicianship as well. It's just really unique just listening to what he did and, and the sorts of territory that he was moving towards as well, orchestrally as well, particularly, which I found fascinating. Well, listen, I wanted to say thank you to you for, for your music because I absolutely love listening to it. And as soon as I put on one of your pieces, it's that music that just takes me to another place. I find a lot of comfort in Thank it, you, actually, that it just sort of takes you out of, you know, when you have a busy day or something, as soon as I hear those first few notes, it's it's absolutely magical. It really is. So thank I kind you. of wanted to say a personal thank you from that point of view. Also, as you know, it was my New Year's resolution last year to relearn the piano. And that was, again, motivated by you because I Aww. wanted to be able to play Bluebird which um, which I nearly got to at the end of the year because you came on to Good Morning Britain, didn't I you? Did. And I interviewed yeah. you. <laughs> and also they said, I don't know how they managed to persuade you to do this, Alexis, yeah. but they said, um, would we play a duet together? Which I have to admit is is actually one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my <laughs> really? life. Really? Gosh, you were so yes, good. Yes, it was. Oh. No, I, well, thank you for saying so, but... I think because it meant so much to me, obviously, to be playing with you and to play this beautiful piece that I loved. But it's it was quite strange because when I sit and play Bluebird here at my piano, yeah. it's a very sort of personal experience. And then it was quite strange to be not only sharing that with you because I felt a great responsibility playing your amazing piece and doing my best to to you know do it justice, but also I think sharing that with other people. I don't know if you find that because obviously you know, music is an intensely personal thing. And yeah. then when you're sharing it with so many other people, that can, can be quite a big thing, can't it? Do you, do you know what? I Well, firstly, thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that, Charlotte. And 
and I remember that day so well because uh, it was it was a thrill for me to play with you and I just I was so impressed with with what you did because yes I mean under, you're known obviously for being a brilliant presenter and, and obviously then to showcase your musical talents in that way is must have been quite different in that in that environment I think one one you're absolutely right in terms of wanting to then that moment where you want to execute and deliver and showcase something whatever it is in the best way possible and I I'm helped by something. When I was 11, I was going on to, again, the Duke's Hall, the scene of the of the dance with Prince. I was going on to play a solo when I was at the Academy and I was so nervous. I was 11, I was going on to play something and I was so wrapped up in my own emotion. And this woman turned to me, I think she's a Russian pianist or something, and she said, stop being so selfish and thinking, <laughs> thinking of yourself. And it shot through me. <laughs> like an arrow to think my gosh that's so harsh i just want to do the best i'm possible but she kind of made me think and you know what from then onwards i start started trying to take my emotion out of every and that sounds kind of that sounds almost like a, an oxymoron or somehow contradictory doesn't it because you want to give the most expressive and emotional performances but the, my and then one of my later teachers, the great, the late great Jimmy Gibb um, at Guildhall School, said the one person who needs to be in total control in the room when you are straining every sinew, or or straining every pore in order to convey a particular emotion needs to be you. So that's the kind of what, what I do when I want people to. I want my music to hit them. I'm talking about live performance. Um, I just try to slow my breathing down and make sure that. I'm delivering in a way that's totally controlled, but also maximise the emotion that I'm projecting as well. But I, um, you did that beautifully, by the way, at GMTV. Your playing was great. Uh, but I, 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 well, struggled. I did my best. Yeah, no, you did. I, well, what you didn't hear, I had a producer in my ear at the same time, and I heard her say, look at her hand. Her hand is shaking. No. Because I think my hand was literally yeah, on, <laughs> on its edge by that stage with the pressure. Uh, yeah. Is, is that producer still with you, Charlotte? Or is she... Uh, yeah, she, still... <laughs> she is. Yeah, I know. Yeah, she I is. I say, should have said to her, "Thank you very much." I was that, doing all right until that yeah, moment. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be. Thank you very much. That will be all. Um, but um, no, that sounds that sounds particularly harsh. <laughs> I didn't have I that on, what, in my ear. What I found actually from sitting at the piano though was the the amazing feeling that it gives you because it, we all lead busy lives yeah. and it's easy isn't it to get wrapped up in everything to not take the time out to do certain things and mm. for me actually sitting at the piano meant that I didn't think about anything I just thought about the music and the piano mm. and mm. that was it and yeah. the music that I was creating yeah. and it, it kind of gave that mindful experience because you just don't you can't think about anything else there's no room for anything no. else it's almost no. like giving yourself a complete break from everything else yeah absolutely I mean you just it, it sort of frames everything that you are in that one moment and everything that you want to represent and it becomes your window to the world doesn't it the piano that's why i guess instrumental playing a uh, musical express is so important to us all isn't it and uh, you know when we hear about the demise of music in schools for instance and um number of, of students who are you know not taking arts lessons whether it be drama or, or music for instance i i um i get very very sad about that because i think it's such an important mm. part of of shaping young people and the, and the way they they look at the world we need more piano playing that's what we need we do you're absolutely right yes <laughs> alexis thank you so much for joining me on my podcast i really appreciate it 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun recounting some of those uh, some of those things that happened to me. I hope that the Royal Academy of Music don't write to me with a sort uh -oh. of cease, a cease and desist letter. <laughs> I know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you're on. Loved all this yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But thanks again, Charlotte. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks ever so much. It was fabulous to speak with Alexis. He is one of my musical heroes and it was such an honour to play the piano with him even if my hand was shaking. Well, inspired by Alexis' story of how he climbed up onto the roof of the Royal Academy while Strauss was playing, this week I've chosen a Strauss piece that I'm listening to. It's Voices of Spring. It's such a cheery and chirpy piece that will really put a spring in your step and it always makes me want to get up and waltz around the room. If you want to hear any of the music mentioned today, it is all available at the Companion playlist. Take a look at the link in the show notes. And if you like what you've heard in this episode, please do share with a friend and leave a review. It'd be great if you could, as it helps the show to be discovered by new listeners. So a big thank you in advance. This podcast is produced by Renee Richardson with B. Duncan and exec produced by Chloe Murphy and Sony Tasker. I'll be back next week with a new guest to discuss their last past and blast. Bye for now. <laughs>